This is episode number 404 with Scooter Braun of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. And wow, this is hands down one of my favorite conversations we've ever had on this show. 400 episodes in, it's a big call. Today's guest is a true media mogul, having an unprecedented success and influence across music, film, and TV, and he's been named one of the most influential people in the world by Time Magazine, and he's responsible for building the careers of like talent such as Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Martin Garrix, and so many more. And today, Scooter Braun's empire, SB Projects, is operating at the peak of entertainment, culture, and social good. So if you're ready to hear from somebody that's had an incredible life, incredible success, and his stories from everywhere he's been in the business and entertainment world, then this is for you. Please welcome to the podcast, Scooter Braun. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? I think when I was younger, I was like, I want to be an NBA basketball player. Um, and then um, my physical um, God-given abilities just weren't made for the NBA. Uh, being five foot 11, just it, it wasn't going to work out that way. Um, and then I thought maybe I'd go into law or politics or, you know, who knows, like, I wanted to, you know, be a comedian at one point, like all these different things. But I found myself uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, going to Emory University. And I chose a university I realized now far away from home because I wanted to create a new identity for myself. I had a really great high school experience, um, but I just wanted to be on my own, away from my father, away from my mother, just kind of be my own man. And I went by my nickname, Scooter, for the first time in my life full time when I arrived at university. And um, I found myself just wanting to make some money because I was broke and all these kids at university had money. So I originally sold fake IDs to uh, make a little extra cash. Um, and then I realized 
that I could throw parties. So I started throwing parties um, and I was the kid with the high school girlfriend who could dance a little bit, you know, cute enough. So the girls were like, oh, we'll go to his party. And I became a very big party promoter very quickly. Um, and uh, my, someone gave me a book called The Operator um, about David Geffen. He's not a fan of the book, but it was a very inspiring book. And I read about a guy who is brilliant, but a, but a human. I was like, this is Batman. I'm like, I always love Superman, but I was like, this guy, he's, he's Bruce Wayne. He's human. He's flawed like me. And if he could do it, you know, maybe I can. And I was in Atlanta, Georgia, the home of hip hop and so many great musicians and R&B and country music and rock and roll. And David in the book talks about this idea when they were interviewing people that movies took years, TV shows took years, a song can change your life in a night. And I decided to go into the music industry because I wanted to do a hundred different things, but I thought it was the fastest way into doing what I wanted. Um, and uh, I got recruited by a guy named Jermaine Dupree when I was 20 years old, when I was the big party promoter in Atlanta. And he said, you got more potential than parties. And he made me the vice president of SoSoDef Records. And I was 20 and I dropped out of school. Um, and I'd worked with a guy who was a radio DJ on the radio, he's Chris Lava Lava, but his rap name was Ludacris. And uh, I started working with him. And next thing you know, I had all these ideas about how the internet could break artists and how this new thing, the facebook.com could do it. And this new thing, YouTube, you could use it. And, you know, MySpace at the time, uh, and then Twitter. And um, no one really believed me. And I decided to go out on my own. And I started the company that I have today. Um, and I signed two artists that no one had heard of. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove myself with these two guys. And the first one was a guy named Asher Roth. We had a big song called I Love College and a Sleep in the Bread Isle album. And the second one was a young kid from Canada named Justin Bieber. And the rest has been history. So, like, do you think you were hardwired to, to become an entrepreneur? And if so, why? Whew. Um, I think that both the love and confidence and trauma that I, that I inherited as a child made me very hardwired for, for, to be an entrepreneur. I think that um, my dad always used to say, you know, everybody takes a shit on the toilet. You know, they're just like you. You know, if you ever get intimidated, imagine them taking shit on the toilet. And, you know, so I was never intimidated by anyone, to be honest with you. I'd always just imagine them, to be honest, on the toilet, and I'd be like, okay, they're human. And um, he instilled that kind of ability in me that, you know, he, every night before we went to bed, he would come to me in my brother's room and he'd say, bronze are different, bronze are special. And he would tell us, that doesn't make you better than anybody, but you have something special. And that propaganda night after night after night, I think we believed it. Um, I'll also tell you, my dad's parents were Holocaust survivors. They were Auschwitz and Dachau survivors. And I didn't realize until really doing a lot of self-work at the age of 39, going into 40, um, how much of that trauma made me great at what I did later. Um, the idea that I, I, I inherited their hurt and their fear of the world. And some people have a fight or flight mechanism. My family's a fight. Um, so I always thought that was a superpower and it was to a certain extent. It made me really good at doing the job and building a business and, and going forward. But I don't think it made me great at being present for my friends and family. Um, so I think there's a trade-off that happens. 
And I was always the sensitive kid when I was growing up, but my dad pardoned me. You know, he grew up in a world that, you know, his parents had taught him. My mom's dad died when she was 11 and her mom didn't have a high school education. Like they had tough lives and the generation before them had them even harder as immigrants who had come from genocide. Um, so I was given all this, but I had such a loving family and I felt so honored and privileged to not be that generation that I, I feel like um, I wasn't aware of it, but that thing they taught you of like Holocaust thing, it's like tomorrow they could come and take everything away. So I was constantly building to protect against tomorrow, you know, and that made me a good entrepreneur because I was, I was never satisfied. Um, I think where it hurt me and where I'm now spending the second half of my life unlearning is I didn't put enough faith in the universe about what it was doing for me. I thought I was manifesting everything and I had to make it happen and it's all on me and never again and all these things. Um, but what happened to me in my life is statistically impossible. And I think I've now come to a place of more maturity to understand that there are bigger powers than me, you know, at play and I can, I can put a little bit more faith in the universe, but that's a whole, we can get into that topic as we go. But yes, I believe both the good and the bad made me a very good entrepreneur, whether later things I realized, the things that made me a great entrepreneur made me, made me lacking in other departments. Mm. Look, I think, I think a lot of people face that because to achieve the things that you've done, it has to be an obsession. Like for anybody, it has to be an obsession, but then, the balance, it's really tough. Um, and by the way, I don't, I don't really have any regrets though. You know, I feel like every, um, like uh, one of my friends recommended a really great book, Marcus Aurelius Meditations. And in this book, he talks about this concept of morfati, which is uh, love of one's fate. You know, you have to love the, jo the joy and the suffering, even the mundane moments. You have to love them all the same because every moment is for you. You know, it's all a lesson on your journey. And I feel like for me, to have the perspective I have now, I have to have the freedom that I have now that came from all that sacrifice. Um, so I, I don't have regrets. I have, I'm kind of just grateful to be where I am and on this journey. Yeah. Amazing. So coming back to the, the college promotion era, um, you know, totally different level now, but uh, for anyone that's listening in that era, like what, what advice would you give to them? One, I get asked all the time, like by interns, should I drop out of college like you did? And when I dropped out of college, I was, I wouldn't say financially secure, but I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and I was 19, 20 years old. Um, so when I left college, I was able to pay for college if I wanted, you know, I was able to get my apartment, you know. So when I left, I was, I was able to, one, I had a job to go to and two, I was already making money. Um, so I would always say to people, if I was to do it again, I wish I would have stayed in college, got that degree, but it just wasn't in the cards for me. And I had an opportunity to pursue a dream. So what I would say to someone is don't, don't jump out, you know, for the dream, unless you have a dream with real stability. And, and obviously when I left, there was no real stability. Everyone thought I was insane. My parents crying when they find out, <laughs> like, you know, it's, I definitely went rogue, but I felt stability. I felt conviction. Um, so what I'd say to someone in that position is one, build it and you can kind of build it while you're in school. And two, um, when you're young and you don't have children, 
you can go a week without eating very much. You can starve a little bit. You can be broke. You can pay for pizza with change that one time a week like I did when I was that broke. Um, when you have children, someone else is depending on you to put food in their mouth. And I think that a lot of times people hear from their parents who are scared that they don't want their child to fail. They say, oh, you need to do this. You need to have stability before you can chase your dream. And I think young people are in the best position to chase their dream a lot more than someone with a family. Um, so I would say to someone in that position, now is your time to find out before you go and live a life that you might find mundane, that you have regrets. Now's the time in that age for you to pursue your dream. You can always go back to the, the safe things. But you know, when you're younger and you can sacrifice, that's the time you should chase your own ambition. So, you know, in regards to your life and, you know, when you, when you were 20, you were appointed the marketing director uh, for So So Deaf, like, you know, can you tell us how you got into that position so young? So I was the big, I was the big party promoter in town. I was like, obviously throwing these college parties at clubs. And then Atlanta at the time was very segregated. You know, there was white people were going to parties at the club that played the hip uh, techno black people were going to the hip hop club. There was nothing in between. And I was this kid coming down from New York and Connecticut who was like, but I love hip hop and rock and roll. So I started doing parties with that music and you saw a really diverse group of people coming to the party. And Jermaine found that really fascinating because I had had all these guys coming to my parties and I would take my money on Thursday nights that I made with the college kids. And I would go to Alex Gidewan's party at the Velvet Room on Tuesday nights that had every rapper and every dope boy in town paying a hundred dollars a head to get in and Puffy was throwing parties. And I would go there and I'd be the only white kid. And he'd find me very fascinating. Like, why are you here? And he would let me in for free. And I'd spend all my money on Thursday nights, faking it till I make it, buying tables at his parties, networking, building relationships. And I'd be broke again by the end of the night. And then I'd go make my money on Thursday again and repeat the process. And I started to meet people and they'd say, what are you doing here? And I'd say, well, I have this other party. And then they started coming to my parties and performances for free. And all these things started to happen. And Jermaine was very fascinated because um, he was dating um, Janet Jackson at the time. And she was coming from LA and he wanted more of an LA type diverse party for her. So he would bring her to my events. And one day he knew I'd done stuff with uh, Sky Shaka Zulu and his artist Ludacris. Um, and he said, I, can you meet me at the Dragonfly Lounge for uh, his best friend, Eddie Skeeter Rock's birthday? And I go and I'm there and I'm 20 years old, 19, 20, whatever it was. And he says, come talk to me. We go downstairs to the lounge downstairs and it's empty. And Jermaine is not the tallest man. Um, and he got on a bench, like this kind of stool at the bar. And he started telling me, you have more potential than parties. You know, I want you to be my Lior to my Russell. I want you to be, you know, and I, all I remember was his feet were dangling. And I was just fascinated that his feet weren't touching the ground. Um, but I was hearing him and I was like, you know, this is my shot. This is my shot. This guy believes in me. And I didn't have any intention of leaving him and starting my own company. I looked at him like, I'm going to be his guy. We're going to build the next Def Jam. Like, and I, I believed him completely and I dove in and he opened my world. He introduced me to a lot of people. He flew me around with him to all these different events. He was the number one producer in the world. And he showed me the music business. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. And what were some of the, you know, challenges that you faced in these early days? I mean, I was new and I was young and I was, you know, 
I was a little wild, like you know, I was still going to parties and, you know, I was, uh, the challenge that I faced was I was so young. So, you know, I'd have these big ideas and people thought I was a little nuts, but I was kind of Jermaine's golden boy. Like I would bring these deals. I was the top earner in the company. You know, I was getting very close to the artists and coming up with these marketing ideas that everyone liked. Jermaine wouldn't bring me to the New York meetings because he didn't want me being poached by the other labels. So I would just like prep with him for the week before, but I was like his guy. And, but I had all these ideas about this new thing that was rising called social media and how we should use it to break artists. And no one was listening to me. And that was my biggest challenge. I knew that something was coming. I, I felt it. I, people were not using social media in the way I thought they should to break an act. Um, they didn't give it the credibility it deserved and the capabilities of worldwide audience that it had. And I struggled with wanting to be loyal and give the ideas to Jermaine versus them not being executed because no one was listening to me and knowing that I had this bigger vision. And um, the turning point was uh, I was in London consulting for this group and little John was at the nightclub with me, um, a club called Cabaret in London, I'll never forget. And we were drinking and having a good time. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I worked for Jermaine for 12 years and I created little John in the middle of it. And I knew I had all these ideas to do all this stuff. And he said, don't wait 12 years. And when I got back, I was nervous, but something happened in Jermaine and I separated and I realized this is my opportunity. I'm not going to wait 12 years. I'm going to build what I want to build. And um, when I left So So Deaf, I was petrified. Like I was like, here I am. I had this thing. I was Jermaine's guy and I'm 23, 24 years old now. I've been there for four years and suddenly I got to go and do it on my own. And I was just like, there's no turning back. And the biggest decision I made was I was still a very big party promoter throughout the whole time I was working for Jermaine. I was had that secondary business. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to go on one trip for a month to clear my head. And when I get back, I'm going to do this. And I'm not going to throw a party ever again. I'm not going to be a party promoter because all the time when they write about me, they'd be like, still party promoter. No one was saying VP is so, so deaf. And I was like, I need to leave this and I need to really focus and build this new company. And um, I risked, I kind of risked it all. Yeah. Wow. And I'd love to kind of switch gears now to kind of management and SB projects. Um, you've been asked to death about the process of discovering Justin Bieber. So I'm just curious more, you know, what's the one thing you, you wish people ask you around that, that they don't? I wish they asked me how good he was. And how good he is, everyone knows now. But you can't create a Justin Bieber. You know, like you could market something and call it manure all you want. It's still shit at the end of the day. Justin Bieber was the most talented, gifted kid I'd ever met. It was so insane how great of a singer he was, how soulful he was. What he could do on the drums naturally taught himself with guitar and drums. Like he was a phenomenon. And we met at the perfect time in both of our lives. Um, so I wish people would understand. I think we don't give credit to children enough. And now he's transcendent and become Justin Bieber, the iconic adult superstar. But he was brilliant at 13. You know, so... I wish people asked me and gave him the credit he deserved as a child um, because he deserved it. There's no way I would have been able to achieve that with someone else. 
he was just that good. And, and I think he found me and our skills met each other perfectly and our relationship met perfectly. And we pushed each other and we didn't get it right all the time, but we found a way <laughs> and, and we've been on this amazing journey and, you know, he made me a better man. You know, he was the first kid in my life, you know, and, um, I, I wish people asked me that and understood, you know, they always used to say like, oh, this machine got behind this kid. I wish they asked me how much the label got behind us because it didn't happen. Even after I signed him, LA wanted to sign Justin because he wanted to sign Usher. Usher met Justin once before we had the meeting and told LA we're working on this for a year. You'd only met him once. You know, um, we were grinding for a year and a half on our own. Usher was the right stamp and we were friends. LA was the right position, but we had to earn it. Tricky Stewart had Umbrella at the time with Rihanna. He was one of the biggest producers in the world. He and I had a really close friendship and he did the My World EP on spec as a favor to me because we didn't have an open budget. Ludacris got on Baby as a favor because I used to be his party promoter, you know, and we didn't have a budget to get any of this done. It was done through relationships and friendships and people's belief in this kid, they were seeing like, wow, he's special. And when we did that EP, it was right after Asher had done I Love College and everything else. And the only reason I had the money to even pay anybody spec money was because Asher wrote I Love College and that song exploded and we got a million dollar publishing deal for him. And the 15% commission, one, per, one manager took five, I took 10, $100,000 that saved my company. People understand I was broke at that point. My 13 months window of I'm gonna risk everything and sign these two artists, I was at month 11. I, I was done. I called, my dad called me to check in on me to say, how you doing? And I just out of nowhere broke down crying, 11 o'clock at night, you know, I'm a failure. Everyone thinks in Atlanta, I've been killing it all these years. I've lost everything. My party promotion company's done. I got this Canadian kid and his mom living in a townhouse under my name with Aaron's rent furniture that I paid for. I'm paying for school. Like I got no more money after two months. I got Asher and his buddies living in another place in my name. Like I, I'm done. Like I, and he said, look, you haven't listened to anything we've told you. And you've always found a way. You got two more months, see it through. And the next day Asher wrote, I love college. And I knew what to do. And I, and I tell people this only because every entrepreneur that I meet, I always ask them about their personal life and their personal experience. All these people we've invested in over the years, both I've done personally and now with our fund TQ and at Hive and Ithaca. I always meet entrepreneurs and they're always like, you know, you're the only person to ask me about my childhood or my personal life or my family. And everyone's asking me about what's my run rate and you know, what valuation are we investing in? What market sector are we going after? And all these things. And they go, why do you do that? And I said, because no matter what, I don't care how good your product is, how good you are, whatever you're building, you are going to have an arc in your story. You're going to have a moment like Airbnb when they were about to be the biggest IPO. Suddenly, Airbnb is going to go to zero and Chesky and Joe had to refigure out the entire company. You're going to have a moment like Uber had where they had to shift. You're going to have a moment like Lyft had where they had to shift. You had a moment like Amazon where suddenly they're killing it and then the market crashes and the stock goes to $17. Like everyone's going to have that moment of crisis and me asking you who you were before this is usually the best tell of whether you're going to be able to pivot and you can handle adversity. And the number one thing an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur needs to me isn't a good idea and a work ethic. 
You need those things. And you see a lot of people right now with valuations and all of us with VC money, you're at 2 billion, you're at 5 billion, <laughs> you know, all these different things. But a real business, a really long-term sustainable business needs a founder who can pivot and navigate the tough moments. And those are usually defined far before you get a business. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. I really appreciate your openness, honesty, and rawness, and just just talking about the real stuff. Uh, because yeah, a lot of people don't talk about this. They they talk about the shiny stuff, and you know everybody looks at you, and you know you've achieved such incredible things. It's uh, you know people don't talk about the sacrifices, the struggles, and the real hard times because those are the defining moments. So. I'd love to talk about the talent management piece. Um, what's the key to kind of guiding someone through their rise to success? Um, like how do you ride the line between friend and also head of, head of an enterprise? Someone asked me the other day, what makes a good manager? And I told them the best advice I've gotten the management has never been from another manager. Uh, it's always been from just good people because you're in the people business. You know, you have to understand how to treat people, how to recognize their trauma, how to recognize your role in things, how to humble yourself, you know, how to speak to someone and realize, yeah, they might not be seeing my point of view, but how am I going to get them there? Because the victory isn't proving them wrong. The victory is making them see what I see. So I start from a place of respect. I start by agreeing with them on something so that they can hear that I respect them and then they can be open enough to hear me. Um, and it's about building real relationships and being there in the tough times. Um, Justin and I have been through so much together, but I also respect the times when he's like, Hey, I need to do this because I'm a man now. Like I, I'm not the kid anymore. Like it's, I, I got this and I respect it. You know, you got to give people room to do their thing. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes with Justin in the beginning that he and I talked about, I, I was protecting him so much that he couldn't feel any consequences so we kept pushing the line and, you know, we, I learned from that and we navigated that and he rose from, you know, from so much. And I'm so proud of him. Ariana and I have been through a terrorist attack together, you know, it, you know, in Manchester and to see her bravery and how she responded with one love Manchester, those moments, those are the big moments people can see and they are defining moments and they build really, really strong relationship. But the moments where you, you really build with someone are the things no one sees the quiet conversations when someone's broken, when someone's hurting and you don't help someone by telling them that you're not broken. You don't help someone by saying, 
you know, you just got to tough it out. And you help someone by showing your own vulnerability and telling them that you experienced the same thing. And there are nights along your journey where you have cried yourself to sleep when everyone in the world thinks that you're crushing it, you know, and, and that lets people see it, it was funny. Justin, and I have one conversation where he pointed out to me, he was like, man, I've never, you know, when I was younger, you didn't show me that vulnerability. You know, <laughs> like I just thought scooters got it all together. And I, I thought I had to be that way for so long for so many people. And I think I've become a better person, a better manager, a better executive, a better investor, a better father by being someone who can express who they were, the fears of who they were, where they are in the present, the story of the future that they're dealing with, and just be human. And, and the best way to do that is to not carry shame from the past, to realize you are not the same person that might have done that mistake. You've grown from that. It's not that you did anything malicious or anything horrible, but we all carry shame for things that aren't even that shameful. We're just ashamed. We're holding on to an internal story that other people are like, well, that's not even a big deal. You know, and it's not affecting anyone. That's only affecting you. But you're holding this internal shame because you don't want anyone to know that you struggled. And I think the real power comes in when you accept and embrace that and you start to give yourself grace and forgiveness because most of our shame comes from things that aren't even our own. Things that, you know, we inherited as a kid or um, and then you can have grace for other people. One of my, uh, my favorite quotes ever is in this book, Tao Te Ching, that Rick Rubin actually gave me. And um, it says, what is a good man but a, a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good man's job? And that concept of what is a good man but someone who can be there for someone else who isn't that kind to them. Because who is that person who's not being kind to them but just someone who's doing what they were taught or told to do, whether it be lately or in their childhood. And when you get to that place, you stop carrying this anger and stop getting in this vicious cycle, people, and you can become the better version of yourself. And in turn, that makes you a better person to deal with someone's life because that's what a manager has to do. You're dealing with someone's life. They're putting their confidence in you. And um, I think in the beginning of my career, I operated from excitement. I operated from conviction, but I also operated from fear. And I think what's changed for me as I continue to do this I'm not operating from a place of fear anymore. I'm kind of understanding that you can have a plan, but you have to operate from a place of truth and no fear. And if the plan shifts, it's supposed to shift. Hmm. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for sharing. I can, I can see um, that you've done a lot of deep work, a lot of reflection. I'm in a very spiritual place. <laughs> no, I just, yeah, I, I've been through you know, many journeys as well. And, and I can see that, um, yeah, you, you really, you're just reflecting and just being so open, honest. This is amazing. So thank you. Um, just around your your skill for identifying talent, I'd love to know just around how you've transitioned that for, I guess, identifying extremely uh, talented executives and building your team. I'd say part of it is what I'm, I know I'm missing. Part of it is I always choose trustworthy people over great people. I think the most important thing is you got to know that you, I, I like to build a family. You know, I, um, I am an open book. So I want to have people on my team that root for me the way I root for them. Um, and I think I've gotten very lucky over the years of just identifying amazing people. Um, I think that they were placed in my life at times. Um, I think that 
identifying talent is almost like falling in love. You cannot look for it, but when it shows up, you know. Um, there's this gut visceral feeling that you have. First time I saw Justin, first time I saw Ariana, first time I heard Gangnam Style, I was like, I know what that is, you know? Um, and, you know, these things kind of happen. And, and like, that's what I said, I think I used to think, oh, I do this, I do that. And now I believe that part of it is me and part of it is they were placed there for me, you know, because we're destined to do something together. Um, but I will tell you, I do not believe in this concept of do not mix business and pleasure. This idea that, you know, people say, oh, those, those are your employees. You know, don't treat them like your friends or your family. It's business. I hate that idea. It is not business. These people are taking time away from their loved ones to sacrifice for you for the betterment of your life. You can show them the respect of realizing that because I take time away from my children to do this job. And I love being around my kids. So I treat everyone with that respect. And I also want to create a family environment so that if it's 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock or one o'clock in the morning and some emergency happens, they don't hate us. They love and respect everyone they're working with that they will do that because they know it's for the betterment of all of us. Um, and I think creating that environment is what got us through COVID. You know, uh, in the first two weeks of COVID, we had an all hands staff meeting and I told everyone, you know, we're seeing all these rumors and what's going to happen. No one is losing their job. And in fact, there was one person who was about to lose their job. They didn't know that, but COVID saved their job. <laughs> I said, no one is going to lose their job during this pandemic unless they aren't doing their job. In the meantime, no one is having a salary decrease. I will go to zero on my salary before anyone loses their salary. And I have a big salary that can sustain us for COVID, but we need to find ways to make new revenue. Once that meeting happened, we actually had a bigger year than the year before because our team had job security. So they went to work in finding all these alternative ways to make revenue and we crushed it. And we never had to let anyone go. We actually had some people get raises at the end of the year. Um, people made bonus. Like I was incredibly, incredibly proud, but we acted as of a family that wouldn't be abandoned. And I think that that was a very, very important thing um, in how we treat each other. And you can ask me another question, but it leads me to this idea that I actually learned through this whole experience of one of the lessons that I learned of one of the best deals I ever did gave me one of my biggest regrets that taught me how to do a better deal the next time. Hmm. There you are. I'm, I'm curious though, uh, what happens when people let you down, right? Like, cause I, you know, speaking from personal experience, uh, similar, similar kind of scenario, uh, with COVID we crushed it. And yeah, after it though, I, I felt that some people let me down. Like did that happen to you? Over the years, um, the job of management and people and managing a very big company is very hard. I've had executives of mine who I'm really close with leave um, with my blessing. Like there was another opportunity or invest in a company they were going to, and they got into more of an executive role, more my role. And they called me uh, three years later, one of my buddies at Westbrook, um, Brad, he called me and he's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> he's like, I, I didn't realize what it was like being in that position. And, 
And some of the things that happened, like, I'm really sorry. And I said, I understand. So I think being in a position of leadership, you're constantly let down. If you allow yourself to feel that. I think you're constantly feeling like, well, how could I be treated this way? I've given everything to this. Like, you know, it, it, there's a lot of taking for granted um, when you're in certain positions. Um, and you can allow that to hurt you. That happened many times at the beginning of my career. I was like, oh, like that hurts and all oh, that hurts. So that person's disappointing me. And I would guard up and I'd guard up and I'd guard up um, to a point where I think many people didn't know me. They just knew the work part of me. Um, and I think that I handled that the wrong way by just guarding and not expressing myself. Now I've gotten to a place of they're not letting me down because I don't think that's mine to carry. You know, I don't look at it as this is happening because of me. This reaction is because of me. They might be saying my name. They might be like, you did this. But I know I didn't. And I know that that reaction isn't based on anything to do with me. Because now that I've done my own work, I've realized my own faults of times I said, you did this. And it had nothing to do with someone else. It was my trauma and my issues and my transference on them from something that happened to me as a kid. And I just was angry or upset or insecure. And I've kind of chosen to look at that now as I, you're allowed to disappoint me. The only disappointment I have now is if I allow it to affect me. Mm, powerful. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm curious around kind of burnout. Uh, obviously, you know, you've gone through some intense periods of business. You know, what do you do to minimize burnout as a founder, especially now with COVID lockdowns? I think we're starting to see a lot of entrepreneurs and founders start to feel burnout. Like personally, I experienced burnout at the start of last year, first time ever. Um, yeah, I'd just love to hear your take. Um, I've definitely probably experienced burnout as long as time, but it's not really burnout of the job burning me out. It was more burnout of, do I still love doing this? You know, that kind of thing. Um, I was so consumed before with tomorrow. Like I told you about the Holocaust trauma. I woke up every morning of my life thinking, is today the day that they're going to come take it away? You know, every day. I woke up with this idea because of how I was raised. Um, and that's a, not a normal way to think, you know, and most people don't wake up every day thinking today's going to be the day. Um, funny enough, a lot of minorities do, but most people don't. Um, because of that, I was more afraid of tomorrow than the burnout of today. So I didn't really experience burnout. What I experienced though was, I was so focused on protecting tomorrow that I wasn't present to the problems that were happening today. I didn't see them as problems because my idea of what would go wrong was so worse in the future that I couldn't see the small cracks that I was allowing by not being present. And something happened in my life that threw me for such a loop that for the first time in 20 years, I was given a choice to choose myself and self-work and trust that my company would be there when I'd come back or continue what I was doing and go down that same path I had done for 20 years. And um, I've spoken about this very publicly since my friend got me to go to a place called the Hoffman process, uh, which was the most influential week of my life. Um, when I signed up, they called me and said, we have availability on October 24, 2020. Ariana Grande's album was coming out October 23rd, I think. 
And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I, I can't go and do this when the biggest album I'm releasing this year is coming out. And I realized in that moment, it was the universe saying to me, what do you want to do? You want to stay on the same roller coaster that's giving you all the success and all this praise and this no ride a scooter? Or do you want to choose Scott for the first time since you were a kid? And I called up Ariana and she told me, you were there for me so many different times. It's time for me to be there for you. If this is what you need to do, go. Um, I wouldn't even say I was burned out. I was lost. Um, I was confused. I was lost. And I was depressed because I, I didn't have direction. Um, and I went into this process and I surrendered to it completely. No phone, no email. And I was like, how am I going to go with no phone, no email for a week? I mean, I'm, I'm plugged to this thing. When I got out on November 1st, I didn't turn my phone back on until January 16th, 2021. I got a burner phone. I had four people's numbers and I spoke to generals of mine to make sure the business continued going in the right direction. And that is how I worked throughout the rest of that year. And I chose me and I chose being present with my children, having conversations that I needed to have from what I learned there. And for the first time since I was seven years old, I liked my name, Scott, again. I used to tell people, I don't really like the name Scott. I go by Scooter. I don't think I should have been named Scott. When I got out of that place, I loved it. And it was because they helped me understand me. They helped me go back and understand all these different things that I'm talking to you about now. And they started that journey for me in a very big way. Um, and it helped me reclaim myself. Um, I had built Scooter since I was 18 years old, because subconsciously, even without me realizing it, it wasn't on purpose. I was just like, I'm going to go buy a scooter now. But subconsciously, I realized now that I did it because I believed in my heart, even though I was a popular kid in high school and had a girlfriend and played sports and like I was class president, I had a whole good thing going on. I didn't love myself. I didn't trust myself. I, I was, I felt I could be overpowered and I built this thing, this scooter, because he could be powerful. He could be strong. He could be brave. He's, he's better than me. He doesn't have any of this stuff in the past. He wasn't 411 his freshman year. <laughs> like, you know, and I built this amazing life for myself and this incredible thing. And I didn't do things wrong. I did things right. I did it every way I wanted to do it as Scooter Braun. But I didn't have a foundation. I didn't heal all the reasons that I thought I needed that. And when I went to that place, it started me on that journey and helped me go back and realize the reason I was so lost is because when the script that I'd written for Scooter broke even the littlest bit, I had nothing to stand on. I was completely lost. If, if I'm not gonna be this person I, you know, I've been building towards and it's not gonna be exactly the way I've seen it, I have nothing even though I had everything and they helped me go back and, you know, I met some incredible people and did some incredible work and, you know, it helped me start. I've done a lot of things since. Um, and for the first time in my life, since I was a kid, I was present. I was conscious of myself, conscious of others and everything changed. And it didn't mean everyone in my life accepted that change or even has met that change yet, you know, but I changed and you know, I meet people, I've had like 11 people go to Hoffman since I got back because they saw what happened to me. 
Um, and when I did Jay Shetty's podcast, I talked about it and I've had people kind of write me from their experience. And I tell people all the time, I don't think I actually changed. I think I reclaimed. I feel more myself than ever before. And um, I think we spend the first half of our life learning. And I think we have the second half of our life to kind of unlearn a lot of things. Um, and, and it's been just a very interesting journey. It doesn't mean the waves of insecurity and fear and hurt don't come back. They do, but you can have tools to get through them faster and faster and faster. Uh, and I just want to say this also, because I want to talk to the naysayer real quick, if they're listening. Someone once said to me uh, recently, they were like, do you think the fact that you're very successful and you have a lot of money that makes it easier for you to do this? 100%. I want to be really clear. I'm not hiding that fact. I think money is an avenue to freedom. Not having money, not being able to pay your mortgage, not being able to put food on the table for your children is a huge, huge stressor for people that can take you away from doing self-work. However, I got to ask one of the most successful people in commercial history who I became friends with a question. And I usually don't say his name, but I want people to know he is a good man, a very good man. Uh, Jeff Bezos, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. He provided more jobs during COVID than any other company, created more new jobs, and he raised minimum wage when the United States government wouldn't with more employees than anyone. I asked him, what do you want? You could have anything. What do you want? And he gave me a cheat code that I want to share with every one of your people now. He looked at me and he said, I want to evolve. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I want to evolve. I want to be a better father, a better friend, a better person. I want to work on intimacy. You know, I want, to, I want to work on my fears. I want to evolve as a human. And I realized you do not need $200 billion to do that. But I had been every single day of my life working, stuck to that phone, building, 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 building. But the end game with the guy right in front of me is to evolve. So not only did I do Hoffman last year, but I took a week, no phone, no email this past year in December. And I went to Sedona and I worked with more practitioners and self-work. Had another amazing week of growth. And I'm going to do it every year. I'm going to give myself one week, no phone, no email at the end of every year. And I'm going to go do a different program. Maybe I'll do Wim Hof next year. I don't know. But um, I can tell you the greatest gift I've had is understanding that I'm allowed to pause and choose me. Yeah. Well, I'm speechless, man. Like I just want to say, thank you so much for being yeah, just so present giving. You've just like really just blown me away with all the experiences you're sharing in your journey. And I can see you're on a new one. Um, I'm just genuinely curious, uh, everything you've done, um, achieved so much, uh, is it ever enough? <laughs> I asked David Geffen that question the very first time we had dinner. I asked him, when will I be content? Look at everything you've achieved. When were you content? And he gave me a really great answer. He said, there is no destination. And he had me read a poem by Kafafi called Ithaca that I ended up naming my company after. And um, I think everyone should read that poem and I think it will answer your question. It's not about being content. It's about the journey and the things you experience along the way. You know, it talks about going to the island of Ithaca and you might see things in Egypt. You might meet philosophers. You might all this thing. By the time you reach Ithaca, if, she finds, if you find her poor, she did not fool you. Because it was always about the journey. 
you know, and I don't wrestle anymore with whether it's enough. I wrestle with the journey. You know, I, I'm, I'm experiencing it now, probably for the very first time in a long time, because I'm present. Tomorrow doesn't exist. Any story I tell myself of tomorrow isn't real. I can litigate the past, but I can't go back and experience it. The only moment I have that's real right now is me talking to you in this moment. And I think when you start to get to that place, you realize it's enough, you know? And we already had enough. It's just go experience life. That's, that's the human experience. That's the fun of it. So if you could go back in time and give 10-year-old Scooter one piece of advice, what would it be and why? I think most people would expect like an entrepreneur, like you're going to do this, <laughs> uh, buy Amazon. <laughs> um, I would just tell them you're good enough. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. You're good enough. You're great because of you, not because of the things that happened to you. You know, and um, I, I just want them to know that, you know, that, that your greatest gift is your sensitivity. Your greatest gift is how hard you feel. And um, I would just want to look at him, give him a hug and be like, you know, you're great. You know, I think, I think that all of us have this core lie. And for a lot of us, it's that deep down, no matter how confident we show, deep down, we don't think we're good enough. And I think I'd tell that 10-year-old that he is. Uh, thank you. W when is work fun? When you're experiencing it with others. You've reached the pinnacle of success. What's something you miss from the early days? Firsts. I miss firsts. I miss the first time experiencing something because the first time is usually the best. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I honestly don't know. I've never been asked that question. You know, like some of the people that I've wanted to meet who are alive, I've had dinner with them and I've gotten to pick their brain. And um, I'm trying to think of someone dead. It's like, and because it, I don't really get excited about meeting someone new because they're an entrepreneur. I get excited about meeting someone because of the human being they are. Awesome. Well, look, we'll, we'll wrap there, Scott. Like, just thank you so much again. This was incredible. This is up there with one of my all-time favorite interviews. And I'm not just saying that to be nice. Like, this, you, you were so present, real, raw. You've given it your all. And uh, I think this is going to really help a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.